What is a killer thinking the moment they take another person's life? I shot the first two and then the other four till the gun stopped firing. How can they live with themselves knowing what they have done? And she tried to open the door as if she were trying to escape. Don Silvernail knows the answers. I'm Candace DeLong, retired FBI agent, former psychiatric nurse, and host of Facing Evil on Investigation Discovery. I've seen bad things and met bad people. My job means I've sat across the table from killers more times than I care to remember and looked them in the eye. Do I see evil? Sometimes. More often, I see people. People who find themselves in situations they cannot control. Is Don Silvernail evil? You decide. As I sit in the waiting room at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in New York, I'm not sure what to expect from Dawn Silvernail. Her case is interesting. She murdered when she was 51 years old. That's uncommon. Older women are far more often victims of murder than perpetrators. But in 1999, Dawn emptied a revolver into a woman in a cold-blooded ambush. The victim, Susan Fassett, didn't stand a chance. In this case, Dawn has a co-defendant who was also convicted of the murder. In situations like this, where two people are involved, there is usually one mastermind. According to Dawn, that's not her. You faced evil. What evil did you face? My evil was my co-defendant. Fred Andros. Fred Andros. Um, he turned out to be extremely manipulative. When I first met Fred, my sister tried to warn me to stay away from him. And for whatever reason, I didn't listen. Dawn jumps straight to laying the blame on Fred. Their relationship is at the heart of this case, and it's an unusual one to say the least. In fact, I've never heard of one quite like it. He was very amicable. He was very friendly. Mm -hmm. He was just... Just a normal guy. Oh, yeah. He was a generous person. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he was the kind of man who bought presents. Fred called me one day and he said he was attracted to me. What did you think of that? Well, it was at the point where I was beginning to become disillusioned with my own with marriage. With your marriage. And I think he, maybe he realized from things I had spoken about that this was the time to strike because he could tune in on things like that. The way Dawn's describing Fred suggests to me she's telling the truth. As if she's reliving the early days where she felt a real fondness for him and more. At the time, Dawn is in her early 20s, married with a child, but says she is not happy. Along comes someone who's offering some excitement, 
a wealthy man with a powerful position as water commissioner for the town of Poughkeepsie. They start an affair. That kind of relationship is just fraught with danger, but it can also be exciting. What was it like for you? It was exciting in my otherwise dull life. Oh, okay. And I think that's part of the draw. My husband and I were not wealthy. I was working as a secretary in the elementary school, and we had money problems just like anybody else. Mm -hmm. And Fred, you know, he, he was well off, and he had whatever he needed whenever he wanted it, and he was never afraid to share. I started to get behind in some of our bills, mm -hmm. and he said that he could help me out. Most secret affairs don't last long. The complications prove too, well, complicated. Most people really can't deal with the deceit and the stress of being found out. Though some of us like to live on the edge and actually thrive on adrenaline and risk, most of us don't. As for Dawn, she is a risk taker. Her secret affair with Fred lasts 20 years. Clearly, Dawn is in deep with Fred. Very deep, it turns out, because Fred Andros is corrupt. He's taking bribes from contractors applying for water licenses. It's all cash, and he uses people to make the drop-offs. People like Dawn. He would call me and he would say, I need you to do something for me on a specific day. He gave me an envelope, or sometimes it would be a box, and he told me to take whatever it was, on, put it on the passenger seat of my car and go to this restaurant and park the car and go in and leave the door unlocked. And what did you think of that? I knew he was using me to do something I probably shouldn't have been doing, but I felt like I owed him. This is not unusual for women in Dawn's position. Over 20 years, this is a full-on partnership. It's natural to feel obligated when a partner asks for something. Plus, Fred has been funding Dawn's lifestyle. It's the least she can do to repay him. But then, things start turning nasty. Fred begins calling in his debts in other ways. He uses Dawn as entertainment for his friends, sexual entertainment. On a couple of occasions, there were other people involved as well, some of his workmen. What was that like for you? A little uncomfortable. What, you felt like you couldn't say no? Pretty much. What do you think would have happened if you said, you're joking, Fred, I, I'm not sleeping with your friends? I was afraid that he would get on the phone and call my home and let the cat out of the bag about what had been going on, and then my life would have been devastatedly ruined. By this time, Dawn is in her late 40s. She finds herself in a bizarre situation. She's unwittingly helping a corrupt official, doing sexual favors for him, and keeping the whole thing from her son and husband. But her second life is about to get even more crazy. 
Fred introduces her to a friend of his, another girlfriend. Susan Fassett is a mother of two and wife of a local policeman. Fred thinks it's time they all got together. When I met her, actually she was very nice. He wanted to know if I would be interested in becoming the third of the threesome. He tells you that this woman that he's seeing has a fantasy that she wants a threesome and she wants it with another woman. I don't think the fantasy was hers. I think the fantasy was his. I listened to what he said to her and kind of just filled in the blanks. For me, it was an experiment on my part because I had never done it before either with another woman. So this was new ground for me. Fred has all the hallmarks of a narcissist, a grandiose sense of self-importance, entitlement, status-seeking, and able to exploit anyone for his own gain. Don seems to have realized this, but it doesn't stop her from remaining in his thrall. Some narcissists are very good at keeping friends around them. They make life exciting, exude a sense of power, and let's face it, they can be very successful with all the trappings. But in the late 1990s, the rug is about to be pulled out from under Fred Andros. The FBI gets word of his corrupt conduct and starts an investigation. Fred needs everyone to keep their mouths shut. Most of all, Susan Fassett, who calls off their affair. He knew that Susan knew of things that he had done that he had never told the FBI people. And now he was afraid that she was going to talk to the FBI people and tell them of the other bad things that he had done and he was gonna be looking at going to prison. What did he ask you to do? Well, first he asked me if I knew anyone who could take care of the problem for him. Kill her? Of course. Okay. And I said, no, I don't know people like that. And he said, well, I suggest you think about it. He said, because if you don't take care of the problem, I'll have somebody take care of one of your problems. You need some nerve to ask someone to kill for you. Fred has it in spades. In his narcissistic mind, he deserves to be free. And if someone can be silenced with a bullet, well, that's just fine. Better still, get someone else to do it and keep your hands clean. At what point did he ask you to kill Susan? He had photographs spread out on his dining room table. And this is where Fred calls in all his debts at once. And he's not just counting on Dawn's sense of obligation this time. He has backup, the oldest trick in the book of persuasion, blackmail. The photographs were of my family members. And he proceeded to walk around the table and point to the pictures and say, gee, that's your son. He's standing out on the back dock of the plant where he works. Hmm. 
It'd be awful if he was a victim of a drive-by in the nighttime. Nobody ever know he wasn't coming back in. I was shocked beyond even being able to speak because I, I just had these visions of all these things happening to my family. Did you ever think of going to the police and telling them and getting their protection? No. Why not? Because I figured if, as soon as I did that, that one, something would happen to one of my, my family members. You really believed that? I really believed it. And that's how Dawn finds herself planning a murder. Remember, Dawn has been with Fred for 20 years. She knows this guy better than most. Some might say that means she's ready to kill for him, to keep their cozy arrangement going. But me, after all Fred has put her through, I think Dawn is simply scared to death. How did you decide by what method you were going to do it? Well, I only knew one way, and that was with a gun. Okay. And how was it that you knew about guns? I come from a hunting family. Where were you going to get that gun? I owned one. You owned a gun? Mm -hmm. Was it registered? Yes. You were going to use your own gun registered in the commission of a murder? Mm -hmm. Almost all killers start out believing they'll cover their tracks and pull it off. Let's face it, few people would do it if they really believed they'd end up in prison or be executed. There's nearly always a misplaced sense of confidence behind premeditated crimes, where the killer truly believes their secret will never come out. Little do they know, there's a thousand ways it will. Not the least of which, when you use a weapon with your name on it. On the night of Thursday, October 28, 1999, Dawn drives to the Pleasant Valley Methodist Church. She parks next to Susan's car and waits for her to come out. What was this, around 8.30 at night? Around there. In October, it must have been completely dark. Yes. Okay. And cold. Kind of like laying in a grave. Susan comes out and tell me what happened. She got in her car. She shut the door and she reached up to fasten the seat belt. And when she did that, I sat up and pointed the weapon at her. I shot the first two, and she reacted. She made a noise, a sound, and she tried to open the door as if she were trying to escape. At this point in the interview, I completely lose Dawn. It's like she's no longer in the room. She's right back in that car on that cold night. These memories are embedded deep in Dawn's psyche, 
not just the details and images, she's reliving her emotions too, and they are impossible for her to erase. I shot through the window glass. Two shots and a hesitation, and then the other four till the gun stopped firing. Dawn drives away. She thinks she's ended her pain, that her son is now safe, that her master is satisfied, even that her husband will never know what she has done. How wrong she is. The investigators got on to you because Fred led them in that direction. Fred didn't lead them in my direction. Fred threw me to the wolves. He flat out told them. Imagine the horror for Don's husband when he learns the truth about everything. He came in the interrogation room and he sat down in the chair and he looked at me and he said, woman, I don't know what you did or if you did it, but if you did it, you gotta tell him. You must love him quite a bit. Yeah. It's one of the things I miss the most. Do you get to see him much? Never. He's just part of the collateral damage. Dawn confesses to the police, and she points her finger straight back at Fred. Even though I bore the weight of the guilt of committing the crime, I knew the person that was really behind it was gonna maybe get a chance to be called to bear and have to pay for it. When police go to arrest him, they're in for a surprise. Fred takes a gun and shoots himself under the chin, just like in the movies. But instead of the bullet going straight into his brain, causing a quick death, it deflects off his nasal bones and exits through his forehead. Fred survives. While in intensive care, he's charged with second-degree murder. Dawn, I want you to imagine that I am Fred Andros. What would you like to say? The first thing I'd want to know is why me? Why did you pick me to do this? And how is it you spend your life manipulating everybody around you and making them miserable? Who did you think you were, God? Fred's postponement of the afterlife proves to be short-lived. Two years later, he dies in prison of a heart attack. Dawn pleads guilty and during sentencing, she has an unusual request for her lawyer. I looked him in his face and I told him that I wanted him to ask New York State to give me the death penalty because I had taken another human being's life and that it was only fair that they take mine in return. And he looked at me and he said, I can't do that because in New York State, they don't give the death penalty and they especially don't give it to women. And I told him that wasn't fair. I want you to imagine that I'm Susan Fassett, 
What would you like to say to me? I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that I took your life. I'm sorry that I hurt your children. I'm sorry that I hurt your husband and your mother and your sisters. And if I could put the bullets back in the gun and undo what I did, I would do it gladly. Please forgive me. Dawn Silvernail felt she didn't have any options the day Fred Andros ordered her to kill for him. It might have seemed that way, particularly after all the pair had been through over 20 years. But Dawn was dead wrong. Had she gone to the FBI herself, they could have wired her up and got enough evidence to lock him away for not only corruption, but conspiracy to commit murder. Had she gone to someone else, maybe even her husband, things could have been different. Dawn wanted to avoid the shame and embarrassment after a lifetime of deceit, but that's nothing compared to what she has been through since then. I live in a little concrete block cell that's got a single bed, and a couple of lockers, and a place to hang my clothes. And it's designed for one person to live there. And in my case, two people live in there. And Susan lives there with me. I live with her every day. If you're interested in exploring more crime, look out for ID's new podcast coming soon. Here's a sneak peek. So you like crime stories, especially weird crime. Well, we have the show for you. Investigation Discovery's What the Crime podcast covers not just the crimes, but the bigger and often weirder picture. Just in a, a week's time, we have enough crazy crime stories to, uh, to match anybody anywhere else for a whole year. Our first stop, Florida, where weird crime is an everyday thing. Florida is a great place to let your freak flag fly. I think of Florida, man. I, when I think of a Florida man, I think of someone that uh, that doesn't that, that doesn't care, that, that that's not concerned about society's opinion of them, because they can't be. What about the shape of Florida? It's got a weird shape, right? <laughs> it's like a very unique. It's uh, what? You're not what? gonna say what it looks like. Pendulous. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, Pendulous. Starting November 19th, go to iTunes to listen to and download the new What the Crime podcast from Investigation Discovery.